Hello everyone and welcome back to episode 3 of Banter with Bells. On today's episode we have one of the most interesting guys I know. Some just might call him the new Bear Grylls. This athletic, intelligent, and true outdoorsman is Justice Peterson. Justice was born and raised in Utah and he is currently going into his senior year at the University of Utah where he studies business and is on the men's lacrosse team. During this conversation, Justice and I were able to discuss rodeos, religion, fishing, and all things outdoors. I hope you all can sit back, relax, and enjoy this conversation. Middle of June. How's your summer going so far? Bro, are we on right now? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> no, yeah, we are. Um, summer's going good. Um, just kind of starting my internship up at Oropac and loving it. Doing a lot of shadowing under like the sales and operations managers, so it's good. Learning so much. Tell me, what is Oropac? Orpac is a building supplier company, and okay. we basically supply like decking and doors and um, railings to places like Home Depot or lumber yards or you know those bigger stores that contractors go to. Right. Yeah. Does how do you pronounce it? Orpac. Orpac. Yeah. Does Orpac ever supply directly to the construction company? Um, large construction companies can come to us. We have a thing called the will call where. You know, if, if a contractor has a big project or anything, or even just small orders that they need to, like, complete a project, they'll come and do a will call, and they can just place an order. And, uh, yeah, we'll fulfill it for them, like, right on the spot. Nice. And what are you doing, like, for your internship? It's – I'm all over the place. Some days I'm in the warehouse, um, like, restacking shipments, um, dealing a lot with, like, over um, – Overproduction that we received during COVID, we still have like hundreds of thousands of um, extra material that just kind of went to waste during that whole supply chain crisis. Right. So we're so a lot of that like there's damaged goods that I sort through and make sure the products going out to customers are good materials. And then sometimes I'm in the office learning sales or going to customers and doing redo like replacing their marketing displays for certain products we provide. Now, do you have is there a building dedicated just for offices, or is it connected to the warehouse? It's connected to the warehouse. Nice. It's just so blue collar, you know. Let's just go. Office right next to it. Love it. Yeah. In and out. Let's go. Where'd you go to high school again? I went to Brighton High School. Good. Compton Heights. They prepped you ready. Comptonwood Heights, yes, baby. Sir. Came out of the slums. I uh, I just did a bike ride, and we went through Holiday, Utah. Uh huh. That's a pretty nice city. Yeah, that's a nice area. That they, they that was the Olympus feeder. Uh huh. We hate Olympus. Don't like Olympus? We do not like Olympus, but great kids, you know. Yeah. But that sports rivalry, it's it's deep there, yeah. Would you say that's your biggest rival? Or Park I, City? I mean, oh, Park City was a big one, yeah, because yeah, they, they were always so good at lacrosse. Um, Olympus was a little bit different because we, were, we interacted with those kids so much, you know, like your cute girls at your school go over and talk to their cute guys, and you're like, you do not like that, you know? Right. Yeah, you got you to gotta mark your territory almost. So exactly. You got to do that through sports. and So that was kind of like, in, in some manner, that was kind of the bigger rivalry aspect. But, I mean, actual competition-wise, definitely Park City and, you know, Corner Canyon were more legitimate. Classic Corner Canyon. Classic. Classic Canyon. Corner Canyon. Don't even get me started. Just kidding. So besides the internship, have you done anything cool? Like gone? Well, not that the internship is not cool. But. It's super cool. <laughs> yeah. um, no. Um, so far, what have I done? My my buddies, one of my great friends from high school, his sister, 
is getting married to another good buddy from my high school. Okay. And they're doing it up at their cabin in Island Park. Is that in Utah? It's in Idaho. Okay. So me and uh, him have gone up a couple times, and we just, like, go up there and either bow and mess around or we'll go and, like, do some yard work, fix some fences around them, kind of just doing the heavier labor that his mom can't really do. Um, so we'll go up and do that, and that's kind of just an excuse to get away. Yeah. And then I've been down to my ranch a couple times um, and just been hanging out down there with family, and my dad bought a new horse, so we're training that one right now. His Let's name's go. Oh, submit your applications for names. So, yeah, right, right now we're thinking Bucky, but that's kind of, you know, just it doesn't roll off the tongue. Maybe a bow. It kind of looks like a bow. What's your brother's name, though? Isn't it his bow? My brother's name's Bowen. Okay. Yeah. Similar. Similar. So, yeah, that's kind of that's kind of what's going on right now. I'm I'm getting ready to go to Lake Powell later in the summer. It's always the highlight of the summer, and then also going out to see Joey Boylston. Shout out number eleven um, in South Carolina on on the eleventh of July. So that'll be so I'll, much fun. I'll go there for a week, and we'll we'll. We'll go live like Outer Banks, you know, maybe go treasure hunting or something. Yeah, find, uh, who's that actress in Outer Banks? Uh, Madeline Klein, I yeah. think it's like her real name. Yeah, you can, f- I, she probably lives there. Yeah, she's kind of cute. Yeah, I'll definitely track her down. So when I fire up the Instagram, we can have name recommendations Yeah. for the horse? Yeah, yeah, no, definitely drop the comments and like, or names and comments and we'll we'll figure it out. My dad would love it, yeah. So you explained this to me once, but I forget... You guys have land and a cabin somewhere else, or you have two properties? Yeah, so both properties. I have a property in Bear Lake and then property at the ranch. My, my, the property at Bear Lake was passed down from my, I think, grand, great-grandmother. Okay. Um, I don't know how they obtained it, but then my, my ranch, you know, people, like, think, like, oh, like, this nice, bougie ranch, you know? But it was actually homesteaded when, like, people, the pioneers came to Utah then my ancestors were assigned to go settle a, a town called Castledale. And from there, they settled this ranch in Joe's Valley. And okay. so because of that, it's been passed down through us. And we're not the sole providers. We have cousins that do much more. They're the ones that run the cattle and make sure all the you know cows are being branded and taken care of and they're fed properly. And they do all that work, but we're lucky enough to just have a little piece that we can go call home, and we we put a trailer there all summer. We just leave it there, and we go down there as much as we can, and it's just it's amazing. I love it. That's fun. Yeah. Where, where's it located? Central Utah, northern. Yeah, it's like central eastern Utah. So Castledale is kind of near Price, Utah, which is a probably the bigger city, but that's still about an hour away from Joe's Valley, which is where my ranch actually is. It's in the middle of nowhere. No, no cell service. No electricity. You know, it's it's about as good as it gets, honestly. So who's, you mentioned your dad just got a horse. Did he get the horse for himself, or is it kind of like your family horse? Um, it's our family horse, but my dad, he, since he's kind of newer into it, he grew up, like, ranching with his cousins, the same there, there but because we grew up in Salt Lake, you know, we never had the property or means to, you know, house a horse. But now that he's kind of getting closer to retirement, he's gotten into it the last probably three years, four years. So he buys these younger colts or untrained horses for pretty cheap, and then he trains them. And we, you know, me and my brother, um, will get on and kind of try to test out whatever they're struggling with, or if they're angry at us, they take it out on us rather than like my mom before. You know, it's actually trained to where we're, we're more trusting to put like my mother or some inexperienced riders on it. So, 
right. it's kind of like, yeah, my dad just, it's like his midlife crisis, we say, but yeah, it's, it's so much fun for me and my brother and my sister, and you know, we have a great time learning how to work with these animals. So how, how do you know how to break these horses in? Have you watched videos or read books or are you just kind of learning as you go? Um, my cousin actually, well, almost all my cousins that help run the ranch, they're all horse trainers. It's kind of, from their town, it's kind of like the thing to do. Okay. Um, everyone goes through that, like in their tw- 20s, they'll, they'll just do it because they're all so familiar with it and it's just been passed down from their fathers. Um, so we, we've, we've been around it so long. My dad has kind of gone into the YouTube era where he learns the newer techniques, whereas my cousins are doing this older school training. Um, but yeah, one of my cousins actually, he, he has a channel on YouTube called Bronx and Donks. And it's like- Shout out. Shout out Bronx and Donks. <laughs> it's got like 300,000 subscribers. Like, and he's this you know kid from small town Emory, Utah, Tyler Olson. Like he just grew this channel of where he videoed himself and his friends and family training these mules and these horses to do these crazy things that you know these modern day trainers they like don't do where they can like go up any face of a mountain they're really they're really broke and trained to just be able to handle anything so i've been around that in my like high school years i got to see that youtube channel grow and his success grow through that and that's also kind of where like oh he's going out to train his horse is like i'll bring my dad's horse and i'll kind of just follow along and see what he's doing now, what's your cousin's name again? Tyler Olson, yeah. How old is he? He's 25. Okay. Is yeah. that like his full-time job? That is his full-time job, That's yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And he's yeah. from this town? Yeah. Area ranches? Yep. Yeah, from Emory, Utah, Castledale. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, about two years ago, oh, what year? It was like my senior year, so COVID was still a thing. We went to, have you ever went been to Beaver Creek, uh, Colorado? Uh-uh, no. It's by... Vail, kind of. Anyways, we went there in September, so obviously there wasn't skiing, mm-hmm. but it was still fun. And we did horseback riding up the mountain, and it was crazy how steep the mountain can be on this, like, probably six-inch inch path, mm-hmm. and the horses can balance yeah. without falling down, which is pretty crazy. No, horses are amazing. Like, people, like, don't really realize the limits they can go to, and and then especially, like, those horses that are raised on a ranch, like, they love it. They love working with cows, and it's kind of fun to see, like, you know, especially coming from the the city where, you know, it's just not as known. And people have, like, their, their opinions about if we're treating the animals right, if they they like it. But they really do, like, it's like a job from them that they love, you know. And seeing some of these horses going up these boulder fields that, like, dang, it would take me a half hour to walk up this thing and they'll do it in five minutes. It's, it's pretty amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah. With 200 pounds on their back, yeah. too. Yeah. 195. Yeah. <laughs> and where your ranch is located, you mentioned everyone's kind of working with horses. Is equestrian big there or not really? Um, No, not really. Not really. Because it, it all just kind of matches their lifestyle. They, I mean, they have like a program, I think, through like the high school or middle school for like country show riding, I guess. But um. Yeah, everything, they go into rodeos first. So all my cousins, actually, shout out Brett Olson. He's competing in nationals on Saturday for UVU. He's he's eighth right now. He's going in the third round. And if he if he can get it, he'll he'll be top three, hopefully, if he gets a good run. And so, you know, like all my cousins, they go. And really, anyone, anyone from that town, they grow up ranching, working on their farm. 
and then they go into high school rodeo and they try to get recruited. My, you know, Tyler went to Dixie State. Daniel, he also went to Dixie State. Brett's at UVU, and they then they go from there and they just learn these like traits that they've been doing their whole life on the ranch, and they just learn how to perfect it, and they're doing it in college, you know. Now these schools. Uh, Dixie State, which they changed to what, Utah Tech? Utah Tech, yeah. And UVU, they have rodeo programs? They have rodeo programs, yeah. And and honestly, I didn't even know until my cousin started, like, doing it. But they're, like, top in the country, you know. Utah Utah itself, as a state, has some of the best high schools and colleges in the country. So between Utah, Texas, Wyoming, Montana, you know, these these schools or these states that are so accustomed to it, they're actually some of the leading in the whole country. Do you remember last December when it was the Pac-12 championship in Vegas? It was the Pac-12 championship and mm. also... The NFR. What The National Rodeo, what, convention? Yeah, um, it's yeah, it's the National... I don't even know what the F stands for, honestly, but that's like one of the craziest events I've ever been to. I've never actually been to it, but we'll go down. They have like viewing parties to where... You can go with a bunch, like hundreds of other people, and they'll broadcast it live, and they'll serve you dinner, and then like there's a live band after, and it's 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 a party. It is so cool, but like rodeo itself is one of the craziest sports ever. I mean, it's so un underrated, and it's crazy what these guys are doing. The ground. Oh wow! It's so cool. Now, is it a team score, individual score? Are they getting graded on one event, or is it a collective score from all the events? Yeah, I'm not sure how college works necessarily, but I know professional, it's almost all individual, but there'll be like a collective, um, you know, winner. So like the NFR, there's a guy from small town Utah, I can't remember what, it might be Magma or Magna or something. They have a couple brothers that are like some of the best bull riders in the country. Uh, in the world, really, but they, uh, one of them, he won the all-around, so he, over the whole week, he had the best scores in saddle bronc, bareback, and bull riding, so he won, like, the overall uh, riding competition, and he, yeah, he won a lot of money from that one. Wow. Now, your cousin, you said he is still competing yes. in college? Yes, And that season's still going on? Yeah, yep. Do you, when does it start? Um, I think it starts in, like, I'm not positive, honestly, because I know they have some some in the fall, and they have a little break during the winter period. But then I think they're picking it back up in like March or April. Wow. Yeah. That, I I I never knew. I doubt it's a NCAA sanctioned sport, but kind of you know how like rugby, a lot of teams have it, but it's not an NCAA. Yeah. I didn't realize though that rodeo was a college sport. Yeah. I, I went to San Antonio one time, going into my going into sixth grade with my grandparents and that was the first time I've ever been to a rodeo mm-hmm. and I loved it because they brought the kids onto what's <coughs> the playing ground the field the arena the arena yeah. yeah and that's when I don't know if every rodeo does this but they tie a ribbon on one pig's tail uh-huh. and then they release all these pigs and the kids chase them and they try to tackle yeah. and get the ribbon yeah. I didn't get the ribbon. You didn't? No, I was too fat back then. So you're not an athlete. Oh, you weren't an athlete. No, no. Yeah. No, I, uh... Pre- was, prepubescent bells. Yes, yeah. I yeah. was, uh... If I was a Pokemon, I would be that middle stage. Oh, yeah. yeah. I was okay. in a full Blastoise, yeah. <laughs> so that was pretty fun, though. I really enjoyed the rodeo. Uh, that was my first time going to Texas, too. That was the first time having sweet tea. 
Uh-huh. And since I was in my chubby phase, like the sugar, I just loved it. Uh-huh. So I was just chugging it. And I drank so much, I went in the bathroom, opened the stall, and just puked all over the stall. <laughs> <laughs> I never told my grandparents, though, because I didn't want to make them feel bad. Yeah, that's just something they don't need to know, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, though. So, rodeos are so fun. Oh. they're like they're, That's, like, one of the best parts about Utah is, like, they have, like, rodeos, like, almost every weekend in, in the summer, so. I worked, uh, going into my junior year, I worked at a public golf course, and the lady I worked with, her son was a bull rider, mm-hmm. and she was telling me how, because in Ohio there's not really bull riding, they would mm-hmm. have to drive to Indiana. Mm-hmm. So she would make that drive multiple times a week, and she was telling me all the injuries he got. I'm like, how do you let your son do that? And she's I like, I love him, but it, it worries me sick. Yeah, it's it's a crazy sport. I, like, I, I would put bull riding, and... There's debates that bronc riding is even harder, but bull riding is just the danger of it is so crazy that I think it's a top 10 sport for sure. Just the fear factor, the... Oh, yeah. Having, like, it's so hard to train for it, you know? Like, like what are you going to do? Get on a bull every single day of your life? It's like, you kind of have to. Like, it's just, it's a crazy sport. I always find it interesting, too, because bull riding, correct me if I'm wrong, but everyone who goes uses a different bull, right? Mm-hmm. So I feel like some are more aggressive than others. Yeah, so you'll actually get more points if you get that aggressive bull. So what happens before the radio or rodeo is, um, sorry, we're on the radio. I know this is live, <laughs> hi mom. Um, but the rodeo, you'll have a drawing and you'll pick a number and that'll pretty much be your bull or you can have that selection based off the number you get. So you want, so most riders want to get the most aggressive bull because if they ride eight seconds and a guy on a less aggressive bull rides eight seconds, they're going to take the higher positioning, the higher seating. Okay. So, so it, it all plays into factor on how you also want to be able to ride it for eight seconds first off. So if it's out of your grade, it, there's just so many behind the scenes things that people don't realize about the sport. Yeah. Sometimes I see it on ESPN, mm-hmm. but... I'll, I'll, if I'm at a hotel. It's like a 2 a.m. kind of yeah. broadcast. It's yeah. like the, uh, were we joking about the videos on YouTube that are only 2 a.m. worthy? Yeah. Of the kids Like the building. people building the, the huts and like the crazy water slide pools. Exactly. Oh, yeah, that's deep, deep. That's like three hours into YouTube. You can't watch that before midnight for sure. <laughs> or else. You get trapped on a rabbit hole. Yeah. It's that and bull riding. Mm-hmm. So uh, you mentioned your ancestors were sent to that land. Mm-hmm. Is that your mom's side, dad's side? My father's side, yeah. So my mom's side, my mom was actually born in New York, a tiny town outside of Buffalo. Okay. Uh, surrounded by Amish. Okay. Um, so, yeah, she she was born and raised there. All her ancestors are from there, um, that East Coast. But my dad, his ancestors came to Utah, and then they settled it. And then my dad actually grew up in California. And they kind of just met in the middle in Utah at BYU oh. during college. My dad was a volleyball player there. I don't think I'm allowed to say go Cougars. No, no, no not no. yet. But <laughs> yeah, wise up. Um, no, I'm just kidding. Wise down. We love the Utes. Um, but yeah, they met in the middle at BYU. I was born and raised a BYU fan. I still love my Cougars. You know, I have a lot of family that are deeply involved there still, but uh, couldn't be happier coming to the U, honestly. Like, Probably one of the greatest blessings of my life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And your brother went to BYU, correct? Yes, yes. Your one sister is currently going to Utah State. 
she no my my older sister um, went to Utah State for two years and then went to Westminster Nursing School. Okay. She graduated from there, and then my little sister just finished her freshman year at BYU, but she headed out on a mission. Where's she going? She's going to Jamaica. Oh, that's a good luck of the draw. I know. That's a lot better than Wyoming. Yep. <laughs> so was your mom raised LDS, or did she... Well, obviously, if she went to BYU. Correct? No, she actually wasn't raised LDS. Okay. So apparently, so my mom, she all, she loves to tell a story. When she, so they have a... I gotta have your mom on the podcast. I know, I know. Get, get Jodell on the podcast. <laughs> I think be, we could go five hours. It'll be electric, yeah. yeah. But uh, yeah, she uh, she was 18 years old. She kind of had questions about religion, but she just always went to the tiny chapel down the street. She literally grew up in a town of 50, like as small of a town as you can get. And majority Amish? Amish didn't, weren't really a part of it because it was like a condensed like rur- like area where it was like actual houses and then just surrounding countryside was all Amish pretty much. Um, but yeah, that town of 50 was like, I guess not really counting the Amish because they were living on the outskirts. But yeah, so just tiny town, grew up religious, you know, the parents encouraged them to go to church, but apparently she was mowing the lawn one day and uh, uh, some elders, some missionaries came up and threw a dead deer leg at her and she like started laughing because it was a funny thing to do and uh from that point on she was like okay these guys are cool like (laughs) I've heard so many stories about these Mormon missionaries you know but these guys are actually like relatable you know they like to have fun so from that point on she she sat down and met with them and listened to their lessons and she found the faith to be true and she believed it and then she came to know that her mom was actually baptized when she was a little girl. Into the LDS. Into the LDS okay. church, but um, she just hadn't been active in so long because it was so far to go to church. She just ended up going back to the church down the street. And did your sister, or sorry, did your mother mm-hmm. not know that your grandma was LDS until she met these missionaries? Yeah, yeah, she didn't know. Wow. Yeah. So I got to take a page out of that story. That's how you get, like, a girl. That's how you attract a girl. You yeah, just, throw just a deer toss leg. a deer leg. Really just any, like... <laughs> dead anything animal limb it'll work girls sure. like that especially back in those days it was like a peace offering i'm sure <laughs> okay. it was like you know just tossing some some sort of invitation out for attractive women i'll have to try that yeah see yeah. how it works out yeah let me know so knowing you you're obviously a man of faith mm-hmm. you're close to the lds church for me being here two years i don't know much about the lds faith can you give me a cliff note version of the story of, is it Joseph Smith? Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith um, and, like, the beliefs within the LDS church and stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so Joseph Smith was, we believe him to be our first prophet in the restored gospel. Okay. So a lot of people, like, knock on the Book of Mormon as this this thing which we just worship and that we worship Joseph Smith, and that that just really couldn't be farther from the truth. It's just an extension of the Bible. It's just an extension of the Bible, exactly. So we believe that God loved everyone on earth, not just those people of Jerusalem, Israel, and those the places that the Bible took place. We believe that he spoke and had prophets in, in places all around the world that people were. Can you describe what a prophet is? Yeah, so we believe a prophet is someone that just receives word from God and is kind of that middleman between... God up in heaven and us down here. Okay. And they just, just like in the Bible, they receive these revelations or things that they, that God would like us to do better or work on so that we can, you know, become closer to Christ. 
So they're just like that middleman, that kind of the, the relayer of the messages. So, um, yeah, so Joseph Smith was that guy. And, and we believe that after Jesus Christ died, there was a apostasy where there was no really true church upon the earth because um, all the truth that Jesus Christ um, taught the apostles, you know, Paul, James, and John, they, as they were killed throughout their life, that the truth faded away. And then we believe that God called Joseph Smith um, to restore the gospel that Jesus Christ taught when he was alive. And Joseph Smith was American, correct? Yes, he was from New York. He's a 14-year-old boy that had a question that I guarantee all of us have had in our life, and it was just, why are there so many churches upon this earth, and which one is true, and how am I supposed to know it's true? So God came to Joseph Smith when he was 14? Yeah, yeah. We believe he appeared to him um, when he was 14, and obviously, as you can imagine, no one believed him. Um, But as hard as it is to believe that, um, we have the Book of Mormon, and we believe it was translated in such a short amount of time that that is a large testimony and, you know, something that I base a lot of my faith off is that supports Joseph Smith and that he did see God is the fact that he brought us the Book of Mormon. And that's like the thing that I can see that it's like, okay, this wasn't a thing before. Where did he get it from? He must have translated it. So God bestowed him the Book of Mormon and he translated it? God bestowed him an angel that instructed him. And as Joseph Smith grew older, um, did that angel follow him throughout his life? No, just once a year they okay. would meet. And if he was worthy, then if, and if he wasn't, then he'd come back the next year and be like, Joseph Smith, you know, if you're not ready, you know, this is, this is not going to happen yet. But eventually after I think four years, he was ready. And Angel Moroni, um, he, led Joseph Smith to golden plates that we believe were bestowed and are hidden in a hill from the end of the Book of Mormon. And he picked up these plates that had been transcribed upon for thousands of years and hidden from thousands of years that from these prophets of the Book of Mormon, and he translated it into English. Now, how many plates were there? Just one. And what is said on the plates? Or what the plate? The Book of Mormon. So the whole Book of Mormon was on one plate? Well, it's like many gold pl- like pages. Okay. And it's basically... So yeah. I'm thinking of a big coin. This is more... No, you're thinking of a... Like you a need token. to think of like a metal book, basically. Okay. Because they obviously didn't have paper back then. So they had to etch and, you know, carve their message into something. So that's what they used. And where was this plate discovered? New York. Was this taking place in the 1700s? 1800s. 1800s? Mm-hmm. So I'm a little, okay, so 14-year-old questioning why there's so many churches, faith, different churches, different faiths, faiths in the world. An angel comes to him at 14, or did God, God come? And, God, God and his in. son. Okay, and then that angel would check up on him once a year, mm-hmm. and the Book of Mormon is, came in that token. Yes, or not the token. plates. The plates, sorry. Yes, no, that, I mean, hey, for, your first, for that little rundown, you understand it well. Okay, yeah. and was it Joseph Smith that Americans were pushing him west? Yeah, yeah, so Joseph Smith was trying to find a place to um, settle 
because as he was doing all this, as he was inviting other people to hear of his message about the restored gospel, obviously there's very few that listened and believed it, but then the, the larger majority were like, you're crazy, right? There's no way, we don't want that here. Because during that time period, right, religion was so strong. Yeah. Um, and because of that, they just kind of get kept pushing town to town, and Joseph Smith would have, all right, he's like, all right, we got to leave. We got to go to this next state or, you know, territory, because not even all of it was settled yet. Um, but, yeah, he had to do that, and he kind of instructed the saints um, where to go. So did Joseph Smith, correct me if I'm wrong, but did he pass away on the journey out west to Utah? Did he ever make it to Utah? He was martyred. Um, so he was put in, in prison many times mm-hmm. because of religious beliefs. Religious beliefs. Yeah. Um, people wanted to kill him. Um, and then in jail, um, I can't remember exactly where it is. I think it's in like Missouri or something. He'd been there for a long time, and uh, him and his brother and another leader of the church, they were all in the same cell upstairs, and a mob came and, and killed them all. Oh, wow. Yeah. Now, who carried on? their legacy out west Brigham Young oh yeah so that's that's where that whole Brigham Young BYU kind of came from and it's funny because he started the like University of Utah first that was the first college but later on it became another institution BYU and and that's kind of where it all came from but yeah Brigham Young came here and he died shortly after Uh, we have this is the place right above the University of Utah campus and that's kind of it kind of symbolizes when they came into the city or the valley he stopped and he said, this is the place. Is it that hill over by that mine, uh-huh. kind of by the Capitol? That's a, no. Because no. there is like there, some memorial. Yeah, there's there. a memorial. Um, but no, the actual place, I think, is just right above the campus. Have you ever heard of Kirk- Kirkland, mm-hmm. Ohio? Yeah. Because that's on the east side, and I didn't realize until coming out here that that was one of their major settlements. Major when, settlements, yeah. yeah. There's a lot of, that was like one place that they loved. They're, yeah, they... The Saints really loved it there. I mean, obviously, who's not to love Ohio? <laughs> but uh, exactly. No, they. I mean, there was great farming and everything for what they saw, and it was going to be profitable and sustainable. So they liked it there, and it really broke their hearts to be able to, to be pushed out of that one for sure. And who do you know? What religious group was pushing them? Or? I'm not sure which. We don't really focus on who did it. Yeah. It's, um, I know the government had a ton of saying it, but I think that's just because people went to the government to push us out more so. Yeah. Um, but the more, like, like killing and, like, abusive parts of it, I'm not sure. It's, we don't really talk about yeah. what religious group it was. We just... Because it, it doesn't matter anymore, right? Oh, right. It's all part of God's plan. Now, walk me through the process that you went to. When did you decide, I would like to go on a mission? And can you walk me through that process? What yeah. classes do you have to take? What education do you have to take? When do you find out yeah. what country you're going to? Um, oh, when did I decide? Luckily for me, I decided when I was a little kid. Um, we're, we're all encouraged to go, and I think it's such a good thing because it whether you believe in the church or not after, it, it just helps you evolve in so many ways as a man or as a woman, and I, I'm forever thankful for that. So... Um, I decided when I was young and then my older brother went to Russia and he had a very tough time, obviously very, uh, very difficult to talk to those people, especially if you're like a white American, you know? Um, 
but he had so many struggles, but he came home just a completely changed man. That at that point, I was in, I think, eighth grade when he left and sophomore year when I got when he got back. When I saw that change in him, I was like, yeah, I've, I've got to go. And he, all the, tr- the trials he had, he still spoke so highly of it. I'm like, you know, it's not like I'm going to go to Russia too, right? Can't yeah. be that, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so I decided at that point. Um, and then when it came to my senior year, you put, I submitted my papers to go. You, know, you kind of just fill out like, hey, any health problems you've had in the past, um, interests, hobbies, um, what you like to do, anything. You kind of fill all that out, kind of just like an application. But after that process, after you submit that, and I probably submitted it in like January, I got my call in around March that I would be leaving July 18th of 2018. And I was called to serve in the Marshall Islands Kitabis Marshallese speaking mission. So that was the craziest moment of life. I'll never forget just being on my front stairs in my house, surrounded by all the people I love, all my friends, family, and I'm reading and I'm like, Marshall Islands, like where in the heck is this? So it's a pretty big deal when you get that piece of paper in the mail. It is a big deal. And they, they don't do it in the mail anymore, which is kind of sad, but I think people like print it out. Um, but yeah, it's like, I mean, all your, cause mo- most of my friends went and it's just kind of a thing. It's it, people almost throw like a party. It's like, it's like, yeah, it's your next two years of your life. Like, let's go have a celebration. You know, everyone comes over and just you listen to where you're going, whether that be Pocatello, Idaho, or you know, so Saratov, Russia. It doesn't matter, but <laughs> it's it's a, it's a fun event for sure. Now, can going on a mission sometimes be dangerous if you're going to a country? Well, now like Russia, I'm sure mm-hmm. they're not sending many missionaries there. Yeah, I think all the missionaries are probably out of Russia, but yeah, definitely um, missions can be dangerous, especially through sickness, which is kind of out of anyone's control. You know, obviously you're more susceptible if you're like in Africa compared to like, you know. Utah, like you'll yeah. probably you, but either way, you can get sick and, and struggle from anything. Um, sickness is probably the biggest danger, um, but there's there's you know places everywhere that robberies can happen or or uh, there's sadly enough there's been few killings of missionaries. Um, it's just it's just wherever you're you're going, you know you never know. But I know my brother dealt with some stuff. Uh, Nothing, nothing physically harming to him, um, but there's a actually a movie about um, his mission. Uh, oh, two wow. two missionaries were abducted. About, I don't know, probably ten years before he left, um, by Russian people, and they held him for ransom. Um, it's called the Saratov Approach. It's actually whether you're LDS or not, if you just have faith in God, it's a great movie because we don't really we don't highlight any of our faith or beliefs in it. It's all just about God and and the faith, and it turned out that the missionaries, I'm not, I'm not gonna spoil it, but the missionaries were okay. Okay, yeah. and what was the name of that film the, again? The Saratov Approach. Okay, I'm gonna have to check that it's, out. Yeah, it's a great movie. Is it on any streaming? I'm not sure, I know they sell the, we have the DVD, we bought it when my brother got that call, because we were like, yeah, you're gonna get abducted. Oh, <laughs> no, we just, we just gave him crap, but yeah. Um, I'm sure it's on quite a few platforms, it's a pretty, pretty big movie. Okay, Yeah. now, Mission comes up, you're flying out. It's not easy to get to the Marshall Islands. No. Um, where'd you have to stop and get on another plane? Um, well, first off, so you start your mission and you're called to, there's called MTCs. And you start your mission going there. It's called a mission, missionary training center. And you basically get dropped off. I got dropped off in Provo. That's like the main one. Okay. Um, 
and you go there for a certain amount of time. English-speaking missionaries go there for two weeks just to, like, learn how to, you know, teach and, uh, like, communicate with people and be appropriate. Um, and then um, missionaries that are speaking a different language but have relatively the same alphabet as English, they'll go for six weeks. And then the people, like, Japanese or Chinese, the, the different characters and alphabets, they'll go for nine weeks. So I was there for six weeks, luckily. Um, and then from there I left and I went to LA and then Hawaii and then the Marshall Islands. So not horrible, honestly, it could have been worse. So you learned the whole Marshall, Martianese language in six weeks? No, 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 no. And that's what, that's what people like don't really understand is that we, we more so learn how to learn a language. Uh, they teach us obviously as much as they can, Okay. but the, what, the process they have to teach languages is actually quite extraordinary. And it's, it's funny because you'll be walking around the MTC and there's like military personnel like being like um, shown around the place. And it's because like it's so effective how they teach the language at the MTC that, you know, people want to learn how, how we do it. And it's more so n less focusing on like vocabulary and this and that. It's more so teaching you how to do it. But... I mean, one big thing we focus on is that, like, one of the reasons we think we're so effective at it is that we, we're relaying a good message, and we're, we're blessed, for sure. Yeah, that's but impressive. It probably took me, like, six months to become, like, comfortable, and then fluent probably wasn't, like, 12, 13, 14 months. I took Spanish for eight years, and I, I yeah. still don't know any of it. Yeah. What got me, was it hard... For when I took Spanish, it was hard learning the conjugations. Mm -hmm. How was that with Martianese? Marshallese. Marshallese, sorry. Yeah, no, you're good. Um, if anyone from the Marshall Islands is <laughs> listening, I apologize. Yeah. Um, no, definitely hard. And probably the grammar structure is completely backwards from English. So that was definitely difficult, basically just having to reverse everything in your brain that tells you how to speak. Um Conjugations were hard, but not not necessarily difficult compared to like some languages. Um, it's probably pretty pretty similar to Spanish. Okay. Um, but the hardest thing was definitely pronunciation, because there's probably it's like a twenty four letter alphabet, um, but there's like three M's, three N's, three O's, yeah. three you know. So it it really the 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 differentiation to just like a word changing from like ligor to like ligor. It's like everything, and like all that you're doing is saying the O differently, you know? Have you ever slipped up on that and someone kind of laughed at you? Yeah, yeah. So I remember my first lesson, my, you, you basically just sit there and just try not to like fall asleep because you're in the hot, humid, sitting on the ground in a hut under a tin roof where the sun's just like baking you, and you're just, you don't understand a single word that's being said, and you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to fall asleep. Um, but I remember that first lesson, my, the one thing like you learn how to do in the, in the MTC is you learn how to pray in your native language. So my companion at the end of the lesson, he like knocked me, he's like, hey, will you say that closing prayer? And I said the closing prayer, and instead of saying like, we always say in the name of thy son, Jesus Christ, because we're praying, praying to God, I said in the name to, in the name of your son, to sing it to the person that I was teaching, Jesus Christ. So I was like, yeah, your son, Jesus Christ is like, we're closing in in his name. 
people so, so they on. so the guy started laughing and and I was like what 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 but my my trainer didn't really even know English either so he like tried to explain it to me after but I didn't even realize it until like I actually understood like a month later that the conjugation I was just like oh I said your son instead of his son like <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Now, I did before this podcast, I did some research on the Marshall Islands, mm-hmm. and it played a big part in World War II. Mm-hmm. Um, America kind of took over the island from Japan in 1944. Because of that, and it having a strong military presence, are there some English speakers on the island? Uh, it all depends on what island you're on. And that's, like, kind of the beauty of the Marshall Islands is, like, I lived, like, probably four different lifestyles on my mission. Um, you know, the main island, you're, you have a refrigerator and a bed, um, and you can find English speakers probably at those, like, the more educated jobs, like, almost everyone is fluent or at least can hold a basic conversation. Um, if you go to an island called Ebai, which is part of the Kwajalein Atoll, which is where the U.S. Uh, Army base is, okay. um, all the people there travel on a boat every morning and then back every day or every evening to work on the the military base because they're paid American minimum wage. Yeah. So it's like a huge jump for them. So if you're on e-buy, those men and women that work there, they're like nearly fluent. Um, but then it's just like a pretty sharp drop off, honestly, especially if you go to the outer islands, which are just like so crazy like no electricity no running water no toilets no anything you're they don't know really a lick of english at all there's there's one teacher usually on the island that he'll like know basic terms but he's he doesn't even know and it's it's cool because we were actually invited every tuesday morning we'd go and teach english to the kids in the in the elementary school so Do, do you keep in touch with anyone it's hard because yeah. because there's so little technology over there. Um, I, te- I I talked to a few people, but I actually spent quite a bit of time on like between the main island and and uh, the outer islands. I was mostly there, so I didn't have a ton of connections to speak. I should do better at it for sure, because you can like reach out and really put in effort. But between the time difference and the lack of who knows when they're going to get back to you. It's just really hard to, like, hold a conversation, you know? Yeah. Now, how many islands are there? Hundreds. Wow. Yeah, hundreds. So atolls, they're not even islands, they're atolls, which are, like, the base, uh, the tops of volcanoes coming out of the water. So, you know, an island that you'll serve on, it, it won't be m- maybe more than 200 yards wide, but it'll be, like, eight miles long. So... There's between those, and they're all separated by a little strip of water. You know, you could you could walk to islands for days. But um, we had about twenty. We had about uh, nine islands that missionaries were on that had enough people on it to like make it worth the the time and effort to put missionaries there. Okay, and another question I had: Would would they ever talk about climate change? Just because I know. I'm yeah. assuming some of their islands would flood during certain t- parts of the year. Um, part, yeah, there's definitely parts of the year where the tides will basically come up and swamp their their islands. But climate change is a huge push there right now. And because they believe in less than 50 years, all of, most of the islands will be actually under the water, which is just so sad because it's such a beautiful culture and um, beautiful place. But definitely that's their like biggest push right now is 
is uh, climate change. Uh, but they're such a like laid back people that it's not really a worry as much as it is like it's just kind of they're just kind of rolling with it. Yeah, it's sad because they can't really do much about it. You know, it's it's got to be up to us to where we're like actually relaying the message and pushing those efforts to do whatever we can to save them. Yeah, because I was taking geography class this past year. And ah, this is bad. I believe the country, it's off the coast of India. Oh, I want to say it's called Mali or something like that. And Bali? Maybe ba- is Bali off the coast I don't of know. India? Don't quote me on but that. But it's a it's small, small island and they're facing the effects of sea level rise and they're actually building up the island. Like uh-huh. they're dredging the bottom of the ocean, bring all that material up and then trying to build up their island. Which is crazy. That's sad. Yeah, it is sad for sure. I think the average, like, altitude in the Marshall Islands is, like, six feet. Yeah. So. Highest point. The highest point is 13 feet, and it's a bridge that connects two two islands. Wow. So it's a man-made. You mentioned a lot of people join the military. I saw another fact that per capita, obviously, the Marshall Islands, more people join the military than any other U.S. state. So per capita, obviously, that's yeah. not that many people, but mm-hmm. a lot of people, that's kind of their main job, working for the military. Yeah, so they're not, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I don't think they're joining the actual military, but, yeah, like, working for the military, Okay. whatever their role is, they, it's, everyone that can, they they do it because, and that's, so EBI, that's where everyone, all the Marshallese people live that work on the military base. It's like, one of the most, I think it's one of the most densely po- populated places in the world, and you could fact check me on that, but it's it's a, essentially, I mean, you could look it up, but it's essentially the size of Temple Square, and that hasn't been open in years because they're redoing the temple here, but it's like one of the smallest areas in the world, and there's about 14,000 people living on it. Wow. So it's just, like, you'll, you just walk through these alleyways that I have to, like, turn sideways and, like, shuffle through. And, like, besides the one road that just circles the island, it is just jam-packed of people because everyone wants to earn that, like, $7.25. Right. Yeah. I'm sure their community is pretty tight-knit, too. Like, Uh, everyone knows everyone. Yeah, so it's already a base of that just island culture to just, like, everyone loves and supports everyone. Um, But, yeah, especially there, it's, like, you could go to someone and be like, hey, do you know, like, where this person lives? And they're like, yeah, like, they live over here. That's and, funny. And it, it's, yeah, it's super funny, but it's it's cool because, like, in that culture, like, you can, it's asking for something, like, you almost have to give it to them because it's, like, you share everything because it's such a community-based, like, culture that you have to work as a team. It's It was super cool to learn that, honestly, before I came out to the U and started playing because, like, so many people would be like, hey, can I have your ukulele? And you're like, it's part of the culture to give it to them. But then, like, if you go and ask another person for ukulele, like, you get it back. And obviously, like, us as missionaries, we're not, like, involved in that exchange. But I remember I gave my shoes to someone. And I swear within the next week, I saw it pass between two other people. Like, just so funny. That's pretty cool. Yeah. It's just pass. Everything just passes around. Now, what was the food like? Food, oh man, some things were like the greatest things I've ever had and some things were definitely very hard to get down. Um, uh, like, especially on Ebuy and the main island, they love chicken so much. They actually have access to where they're shipping chicken from the States. 
they they just love to just eat boiled chicken and rice. And oh, it's wow. just great. Um, they do have a little struggle um, in fully cooking the chicken, I will say. Um, Did yeah. it affect you ever? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So you get you get bloody chicken quite a bit. Oh. Um, still tastes good. Um, <laughs> but their barbecue chicken is probably some of the best, like, chicken I've ever had in my life. When they, like, throw parties and stuff and they barbecue their chicken, oh, my gosh, it's amazing. Now, do they use any condiments? Uh, no. They love their ketchup or the, they'll call it tomato. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, they, uh, they love ketchup, but in, like, 90% of homes, they won't have it. Now, what about, is it similar to other Pacific Islands? Will they have pig roast? Yeah, yeah, they'll have pig roast. And, and that's where kind of that, that food changes is, like, almost once they stop eating American food, like, it just gets better and better. Um, the plants, there's, like, breadfruit and, and bub. And I honestly don't know most of the English names for them, but, like, some of the best food I've ever had. And they'll just pick it right off the tree, you know, pull a fish right out of the ocean that you saw 20 minutes ago and it's on your plate and you're eating sushi and it's just like some of the greatest things ever yeah they're, they'll they'll kill a pig for a party and they'll roast it and and you'll be part of like the whole process of you know scraping the skin off burying it in the ground and setting it letting it sit for hours and then you bring it back out it's like it's it's a whole party and it's so like cooking is part of the party almost. And oh yeah. Yeah, it's it's a great time. So that's how they cook it. They yeah. dig the hole uh-huh. with the coals and then bury it. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Now, what type of currency do they use? Do they use US dollar? They use US dollar for the most part. Um but most of it is exchange rate. Um on the outer islands and and the main job really everywhere um is coconut husking and you what the the process is basically they gather coconuts that had fallen to the ground, they husk them, they crack them open, they carve the meat out, and they smoke the meat. And then and that just preserves the meat, and then they fill them in these huge bags. And then once every, like, three to six months, a ship will come to each island and collect all these bags, and that's kind of what they get their food for the next three to six months. So, like, they'll get a bag, they'll fill up all these bags for so long, and... They'll be like, all right, I got to buy 15 bags of rice. And they love their Kool-Aid. They always buy their Kool-Aid. They buy their, you know, their grease for cooking and frying. Um, and they just kind of buy for whenever they think the, they, they'll need food till. And if the boat doesn't come, like I was on an outer island, the boat didn't come for about a month. And we were out of rice. And basically we were just eating fish every single day. So... Rather than getting a currency, it's more of a trade yeah. and barter. Yeah, so it, it, it's it was super cool to watch, honestly, because like these guys, they they literally just do it all day, every day, and and the women play their role, the men play their role, and the community plays their role, and it's so cool. And then when that when that ship comes, and they have like cold soda, it's like the crazy. It's like a party. Everyone's, I mean, everyone's like, oh my gosh, the soda or like cold water, like it's it's. It's a it's a great site, honestly. Yeah. Do they fun. get the powdered cool Kool Aid or the, the pre-made? The powdered Kool Aid. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they'll just buy like fifteen bottles of it, and it's just like they're just they'll be living their best life until until it runs out. Oh, I was at Costco the other day, and I got the uh, powdered Gatorade. Uh huh. So good. It's so good. It's amazing. Uh, have you heard of Bikini Atoll? Uh huh. Yep. Because. I've heard of it, and then I saw it's 
part of the Marshall Islands, mm-hmm. and that's where they did all the nuclear testing. Correct? Yeah, and Bikini Bottom. Yeah, it's all related. To yeah, SpongeBob. SpongeBob. Right? That that radiation kind of turned them turned them crazy. But yeah, Bikini Atoll. That's where they did uh, testing, and a reason that um, Ebi partially is the reason Ebi is so popular is because they actually had to evacuate people out of Bikini Atoll before they did it, and they put them onto Ebi. So it was sad. It's it's sad to see because they were taken from their homes, and it's it's really tough. But yeah, that's where they did the testing, and obviously the effects have lasted so much longer than they anticipated. What effects? Um, radiation. Yeah, I mean it was some of the it was like the foremost tests on nuclear bombs. So they had no clue what it was gonna. Now radiation to people's health. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. sad. Um, you can't eat fish there that you get out of it. Um, it's like one of the most popular places to go scuba scuba diving. Probably not popular, but cause, so it's not known. Mm-hmm. But apparently, it's some of the most spectacular uh, scuba diving in the world because they actually brought in Japanese ships that they had captured, and they wanted to do a sea effects of how what it would do to this many ships, how far away. They had it all calculated out before dropping these bombs, and now there's these sunken Japanese ships all over Bikini Atoll, and you can go scuba diving and see the most like amazing obviously no one's fishing there so there's just amazing fish that you can see and swimming in these japanese ships and airplanes that are in the bottom of the ocean that is that's pretty cool yeah so the ships act as kind of artificial um what is it reefs yeah 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 Yeah, just like a big fish tank have you seen the spongebob episode where they they're in the water and then they come out of the water and they're like yeah. little little puppets on the yeah. That's yeah, that's Bikini Atoll. That's Bikini Atoll right there. Yeah. That's great. All right, let's see what else we got on the docket. Oh, I wanted to talk to you about your Alaska trip last year. Alaska. Because I don't I know you went. I know it was definitely a grind. Uh-huh. Uh a lot of great memories, a lot of uh DS playing, but a lot of DS. Mario Kart, man. Hey, don't test Tyler Budge or I and Mario Kart, okay. Is that Tyler Budge is a crewmate, that yeah. kid's lethal on the sticks. And you can, did you have multiple DSs? Yeah. Because so you could play each other. We were other. party playing. Yeah. yeah. So, oh man, Alaska. So my captain is actually headed up there right now. He's about to go. Is he from Utah? No, he's from Alaska. Okay. So born and raised, it's kind of a family business. His dad has a boat. His Now he has a boat. Um, but yeah, one of the one of the greatest experiences of my life for sure. And uh, I honestly wish I could go back. I leave that place and I'm like, I'm never stepping foot on a boat or around a fish ever again. But then like three months later, you're like, why do I kind of want to go back? And then three months after that, you're like, oh man, I'm debating it. And then, you know, it just kind of gets better and better. But it's, it's amazing. So we, yeah, we fly into Anchorage, Alaska. Then from there you get on a tiny little, little plane that takes you to Naknek, Alaska. And it's like chaos. You know, people will fly in without having a job or a boat. And they'll stand on the side in this little tiny airport and be like, I've done it for this many years. This is my experience. Someone please hire me. For fishing? For fishing. Fishing related? Yeah, for fishing. It's a total fishing town. Like for those two months out of the year that people are there, it is crazy. It's mayhem. There's no economic infrastructure that could actually support it without this fishing season. Yeah. So yeah, you, you fly in there. And you spend about three or four days, eh, almost a week, preparing the boat, you know, getting all the engines, oil changed, flushed, getting everything set up from winter, like getting it fixed, 
everything that you need to do, you're getting it all ready, all the food stored away, all the tools set up. Because once you start, once out, once your boat hits the water, you are nonstop until you pull out. Now, do you drag? Do you drag nets? Yeah. So you use like I can't remember the exact because we use a. It's called lengths, and we use uh, fathoms of nets. We go, you go in like 25 and 50 fathoms. Um, so I think we had about 150 fathoms of net, and I don't know what that kind of metric correlation is to like feet and yards, right. but it's probably around, we'll say it's around 150 yards, and it's, there's a big drum basically just huge reel on the back of the or middle of the boat and it goes out off the back end of the boat and then the boat the drive the captain will just drive out and the net will just spool out and you'll leave it across the the river or wherever you want to be um and there's so many distinct fishing borders that you can't cross so you have to be very tactical about where you're laying your net where the tides are going and you basically are just trying to get in the way for these fish that are leave, coming from the ocean and going up river to spawn. Were you primary, primarily catching salmon? I, you only catch salmon. It's actually kind of crazy how you only catch salmon because there's just millions and millions and millions of thousands of salmon going up this river or, or really going into these bays because uh-huh. you're not allowed to go into the river. That'd be too easy. Okay. Um, but yeah, just millions and millions of fish that go, and pretty much all the other f- animal life just leave uh, during this six weeks period. Because Ex- they know it, we're coming. Yeah, yeah, except for seal. Like, it's a heyday for seals. You'll see them picking fish out of your net, eating the fish out of your net. Um, bears love it. Eagles, obviously. So. Did you see any whales? I didn't. I Oh, wait. I saw a couple of beluga whales, which is really cool. I thought I would never see that in my life outside of, like, SeaWorld, but that's pretty cool. That was, that was super cool, yeah. That is sweet. Now, how big was this boat? So the boat is like 32 feet long. Um, the average wakeboarding boat, wake serving boat, is like 23, 24 feet long. So oh, so this isn't that big of a it's boat. It's not. It's not. It's a big boat, but it's not that long. It's like it's 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 like one of those boats you'd see like Popeye on in a cartoon. Okay. Like just a really bulgy, like a Forrest Gump's boat, kinda. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of like, like that. Like the shrimping boat? Yeah, yeah. Um, just really bulgy, um, built for stability, mm-hmm. and just storage. And basically, you live in the nose, the captain drives above you in the cabin, you come out, you crawl out of your little bunk, whenever the captain just stomps on the floor to wake you up, and you start fishing, you lay the net out, and you wait, and when the net's full, you reel it back in, bit by bit, and you just pick the fish out of the net right onto the deck. Once that, once the boat length's done, you reel it back up, pick more fish. You clean the net. Once all the fish are on the ground, you lay the net back out, bleed all the fish, shove them into your bins in the floor, and then you keep going. And you just repeat for as long as the allotted fishing time for that day is. How? What is that allotted fishing time? So it's it's very heavily regulated. Yeah. Um, by the government because they obviously want a certain amount amount of fish to continue upriver for the next years. Right. So as many fish are making it upriver, you're allowed to keep fishing. So they'll, I think every like four hours, they'll be like, okay, this is your time you have to stop fishing and there'll be a dead period. Or if a ton of fish are going upriver, you're like, all right, you got 12 more hours you can fish. And um, 
because that's regulated so much, the times that you fish are always changing. The average time last year was probably 20 hours um, at a time. Uh, so You're allowed to fish? Yeah, each in that 24-hour period. You can fish for 20 hours? Yeah. Oh, wow. So those 20 hours, you're fishing nonstop. Would you have shifts? No. You'd be, Everyone's working. For 20 hours? For 20 hours. This You'd is, sleep for four hours? This is, if that, because when, when the clock hits like 3 a.m. and you have to stop, then you stop fishing, your, your net has to be out of the water, or if you caught, get caught, it's like a $10,000 fine, even if it's like a minute after. Yeah. But, yeah, once that net's pulled out, once that time is done, then all the fish that you have on that boat, you have to take it to these big, huge ships, like the ones you see on Deadliest Catch, uh-huh. and you have to o- offload all the fish, you have to weigh it, you have to get your pay stub for how many pounds of fish you have, then you have to clean the boat, get it set for next period. Then you get, you have to eat, and then you go to bed and sleep for as long as you can until that next opening period is. Were you working seven days a week? Seven days a week. Bro. There's no stop for six weeks straight. There was one period we worked for 76 hours straight. I would have been sleep deprived. You get so sleep deprived. And, and... It's like it is one of the hardest things. People don't understand how hard it is, really. Yeah. Um, it's it's one of the most mentally taxing things ever, but it's it's so rewarding when you get off that boat and you ha- you're like, dang, I just worked my butt off and now I don't have to work for six months. So how long is that fishing season? Six months? Is that happening? No, year? it's six. So the f- it's open for about probably three months. Okay. But the fish run where it's a fit like the cost is efficient enough to where you're burning diesel you you want to you don't want to be in the water for more than you for more than you're making money you know yeah so it we we always say it's six weeks six weeks the fish are running enough to where the first week you're not catching a ton but you're covering your diesel costs this last week it's the same thing you're just trying to milk as many fish as you can out but you're not really catching much. Those middle four weeks, three and a half weeks, you are, you have more work than you can handle. So some of these captains, are they only working six weeks out of the year? I mean, yeah, some, for sure. They'll, they'll all, like my captain, he works at a fly fishing shop. Okay. Not, um, but they, if you're a good captain, yeah. The most, the thing is like these guys are so blue collar and just, they work. Yeah, but they can't just they, sit still. No, they do something they love, though. So, like, a lot of them are hunting guides up in Alaska or fishing guides or what they just do something that they love and are passionate about. But when it comes to making money, salmon fishing usually covers it. You told me a story. I forget the details, but you smelled something, and it was so bad you just started puking. Yeah, bonefish. Bonefish? So we, we call them bonefish. Um, it's based – so how the salmon life cycle works is – they go out to sea, and when they come back to swim upriver, and those are the fish we're catching, they lay their eggs and they die. So it's it is the end of their life cycle. We're, we're not catching these baby fish that we're just like, you know, killing hundreds of thousands of them. No, it's it's completely opposite to where it's the end of their life, and we're catching them. And these obviously fish make it up. They'll lay their eggs, and then as the season goes on, you'll get more and more. We call them bonefish, drifting back downriver into your nets. And are they already dead or are they nearing? They're long dead. And we oh. call them bonefish because they are pure white. Oh, and they're, they're already, like, decaying? They're decaying. Oh. They're rotten. 
They have been eaten apart by seals when they are fresher, and then they're just floating downriver, and they get in your net, and it is, I've smelt a lot of bad things in my life, but it is the, hands down, the worst smell. And this particular time, as we were probably working for 30, 30 hours at this point, it was a pretty rough sea, it was probably like six foot swells, and I just caught a whiff of it, and I, I couldn't anymore, I was so tired, yeah. I was so not like nauseous and just, I didn't get seasick, but you know, as, as, as you're awake longer, you just get more and more susceptible to it. So I caught a whiff of it and I just straight up threw up all over the, I just threw up overboard, leaned over the railing and, and I couldn't do it. Did being, having little hours of sleep each day, did you ever hallucinate? I wouldn't say hallucinate. Yeah. Um, one of the one of the crazy things I learned was how little sleep you actually need. Obviously, you won't be happy. Yeah. But for my body to um, to continue to operate, I really needed no more than three hours. And and as tough as it is for us deckhands, you got to give it to the captains because while we're asleep, they're still driving. Yeah, so they're getting even they're, less they get sleep. even less sleep than us. And and granted, they're not out there picking fish in the cold and the rain, but like, I would rather do my job than a captain's job any day because they get nearly zero sleep. It is actually absurd. And with summer in Alaska, is it light? Yeah, uh, year round. Year round or day? Yeah, twenty fourth. Pretty. Mu- it'll go dark about two hours a day. Okay. Yeah. And are you fishing during those two hours or sleeping? Fishing. Yeah. It doesn't matter what time it is. You're, you're, if, it, if you're allotted to fish, you are fishing. Does time with the sunlight kind of affecting you, getting a little sleep, do you really lose concept of time? Like, yeah, time. I don't really care it's 1 p.m. Like that. It's not lunchtime. It's not no. whatever. Yeah. Time becomes completely irrelevant. Right. You base your days off of um, your fishing allotments in, in those openings. Because like, you eat at the beginning, no matter what time. Obviously, you're already fishing, but you'll send some person in to make the food, pass it out to you through the window, and you eat while you're out there. And I did it wrong because I didn't eat enough. It, you have to eat so many just finger foods and snacks that oh. you can eat quickly. So it's like yeah. granola bars, trail mix, beef jerky, um, cliff bars, a lot of unhealthy things. My, I was so grateful my coaches allowed me to go in the first place to pay for school that I was like, okay, I gotta be healthy. So I actually, I scrapped some clothes on my packing up and I stuffed cans of tuna that I got from Costco Mm -hmm. in in my carry-on. So I I stuffed almost six weeks amount of tuna Tuna. to where I could eat one can of tuna a day. And that was pretty much my food. So I ate a can of tuna, some cheese and Every evening we had rice, so I just eat some rice and tuna, um, and it really made it a lot harder on me. I'm sure I was in a much worse mood than I would have been if I just ate, but I came back like 20 pounds lighter. You know, it was not healthy, but that was like the kind of thing that like I was like, all right, time is completely irrelevant, irrelevant right now. Like I'm starving, but I'm gonna be starving for the next six hours. So what's the difference? Do you feel that this trip has helped you in life with mental strain? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. 
yeah, mental strength for sure. Um, especially from like, for doing things when I don't want to, that's probably the biggest thing. It's cause like, no matter what, you're gonna be tired when you're tired. And that's something I've learned, but it's more so like, okay, well this job still needs to be done. So I'm gonna do it, you know, I'm not gonna, it, it doesn't matter how I feel right now. I, I, I have to do it and cause I feel like in today's day, especially it's like, there is so much choice, which is great and in the right aspects, but I also kind of have learned so much more to appreciate that there life is life. There's purpose to life to where there is no choice and, right. and life is supposed to be hard. And if we're doing it in the right ways and making our right choices, like pushing ourselves and living a tough life, isn't a bad thing. No. Yeah. There's a book. I didn't read the book because I don't know. I'm not a big reader, but they made a documentary about it. It's called the art of not giving an F mm-hmm. like, and, yeah. uh, in it, it talks about the relationship the more suffering you go through in life, the you'll have an equal amount of reward. And that kind of reminds me with this trip. And earlier you said, you're like, I'm never doing this again. But then three months later, that kind of reward kicked in. You're like, you know what? That wasn't too bad. Like, yeah. And yeah, everything's temporary. Because like, yeah, we, I, I think we're programmed as humans to feel pain and acknowledge it. But we're also programmed to forget yeah. And I think that, you know, every time we're out on the field doing 300s or sprints or something we just really don't want to do, I always think I'm like, you know what, like, I know in a year or in six months, I'm going to have forgotten how bad it is. Yeah. I'm going to remember that I don't like it. And I remember I don't like fishing, but I'm not going to remember really how bad it was. And I'm going to be willing to go at it again. And that's kind of the whole purpose that I've like connected with life It's like, we just gotta like keep going at it, cause as much as we're programmed to have opinions on how much we don't want to do anything, yeah, it's like we also are programmed to forget the true pain, and we can we can go through really anything. One thing I noticed noticed too about doing hard stuff in life, I don't know if you agree, but the hardest thing about doing something is just starting it. Absolutely, you know, cause yeah. sometimes I'll I'll think something's harder than it is, and I'll be like, oh, I don't want to do this, and then I'll bring myself to be doing it. I'm like, oh, this isn't that bad. Mm-hmm. You know, you mentioned some of the guys would do like hunting trips in the off season. Have you, that reminded me, have you ever seen the show Alone? Yeah. That show's sweet. I love Alone. On Netflix? Yeah. Yeah, that show's entertaining. It's very, yeah, it's impressive what those people do. Yeah. For sure. Now, how often would you come on land? I got on land once to uh, my brother. So there's a peak season. It's about two weeks long. Yeah. And that's when... Fishing is nearly open 24 hours a day. Yeah. Um, and there's so many fish that, like, you can't even pick your whole net before you let it back out. Mm-hmm. And you want to go get the other side, and you kind of just, like, swap filling up each side of the net. Um, but, yeah, it's called Peak. My brother came out. He's a, he's a veteran, so he's really good. And he also, like, has a job, so he couldn't get off six weeks of work. Right. But he could, like, manage two weeks. So we went and picked him up, and I got off for that and it was great. I got a shower in. So it was awesome. Bro, being on I get seasick. I oh, I could not be on a boat for that long. Yeah. I was talking to a girl from Alaska. She's actually on the swim team here mm-hmm. and she was telling me that where she's from, the way that they prepare the salmon, it's almost I believe she said it's like a granola bar, like they make it into strips. Did you experience that or no? 
Um, no, no. When whenever we did eat a salmon, yeah, which is pretty rare, um, we uh, we just kind of filleted it and yeah, yeah, that was a bit, it. Yeah. All right, last topic. We're at an hour and fifteen. We're is that what, good. Yeah. What do yeah. they say? Uh, time flies when you're having fun. Yeah. I'm right. having a blast, yeah. Bella. I'm <laughs> good. I'm no. su- I'm happy. I'm happy that uh, you wanted to come on because I'm always nervous asking people because yeah. it takes out a little chunk of their yeah. day, but it's fun. No, it's good. And I'm getting to learn more about my teammate. Yeah. Team building. Yes, All right. Sir. Last uh, last point I really wanted. Do you have to leave sometime no, soon? I'm good. Okay. Um, is I want to know more about your skiing career. When did you start it? How'd you get into it? Skiing. Oh you know? man. Um. I, I think my, my parents told me I got on skis when I was two for the first time. Oh, my gosh. So they started me really young. Now, did your dad ski growing up? My dad, yeah, he would ski growing up probably a couple times a year because mm-hmm. um, he still had family, um, or his dad still had, his dad and mom both had family here, so they would come. Um, but my mom skied in back east New York, so we, were, like, we had the roots, but I owe everything in my ski career to my older brother. Mm-hmm. Because I started skiing, and because my brother was so into it, my parents started us in a ski program called the Solitude Devo team up at Solitude Mountain Resort. And what does Devo mean? Is that just the name? It's it's pretty much short for development. Okay. Whereas most ski resorts had uh, just race teams, Um, they focused on teaching you how to race, but also do every other aspect of skiing. And I think that was the best thing ever for me because it taught me not only how to be fundamental and have those really like hardcore bases of ski racing that are so good, but it taught me how to ski powder at a young age and taught me how to deal with moguls or different types of snow and situations. Um, But yeah, but because my brother was so into it, he started that and my parents would just take us up every Saturday. And even before I was of age, my my brother would just kind of, I would just follow his group along. Even before I was allowed to be on the team, I would just follow them around. And my brother kind of just, you know, put his head down and just like grabbed my hand and just drug me behind him. And and because of that, you know, we really got into ski racing. We loved it so much. But then by the time we hit like sixth, seventh grade and our other friends were actually starting into it, to get into it, um, we were like, dang, skiing uh, out of bounds and like on unmarked you know runs and in freestyle uh kind of creative lines it's like a lot more fun it, it it brings in almost a creative aspect of your mind to where you look at a mountain and to where someone's like oh dang I'm just gonna go down that you're like okay there's a tree there that I could like jump off or there's a little roller here that if I go fast enough and pop at the right time I could get like a lot of air, maybe do a backflip. So that kind of, that really inspired my older brother. And in turn, I just, you know, kind of got drug along. Yeah. And I loved it so much because obviously as a little brother, everyone just wants to impress their older brother and their friends. So, I mean, there's still a lot of debate in the family and between me and him, who's better. But uh, um, I always like to say I'm a little bit better, but it's all because of him. You know, like I got to, when he was learning how to backflip, then he was able to teach me. And like, I just kind of had a little jump start on everything because he had to teach himself. Yeah. Whereas I, you know, got to have an instructor and have someone to push me to where, 
you know, you're skiing with your friends, you're like, oh, you don't want to do that? Like, that's fine. My brother would be like, dude, stop being a little wuss. Go do it. Like, you have to. Yeah. And I found, I fell in love with just, like, pushing myself and being like, dang, I'm super scared right now. But, like, committing myself to something and either succeeding or failing and trying again, like, th- there's no better feeling in the world. I know my roommate, Joey Boylston, he's like, dude, I... I honestly don't know how you can love something so much. Like, there's nothing I love in my life that you're as, like, passionate about as skiing. And, you know, skiing is just, like, some of the greatest things all mixed together where you can push yourself. It's a sport. You're with friends and people that you love. Like, it's just, honestly, it's one of the best things ever. But, yeah, after ski racing, I I had a little bit of success in that for a sixth grader, Mm -hmm. as much as you can. I remember I, my, the, the state championships in sixth grade, I won the state championship, and I didn't get to get my medal or stand on the podium because I had a piano recital. Oh! My mom snatched me from the, I finished my run, she snatched me, we drove down, and I went to my piano recital. And, I mean, obviously it turned out okay because I was only in sixth grade. It's like, what's a medal? But that was like kind of like the thing where I was like, dang, like maybe I should continue this, but... You know, ski racing in Utah after, once you get into high school, it, it just becomes a super big time commitment. Yeah. You're leaving school early. You're, you're waking up at 5 a.m. to go ski before school and coming back down. And I was like, you know what? I want to keep skiing fun. I want to keep it as a hobby. Don't so, want to get burnt out. Yeah. So I, I stuck with my other sports, lacrosse and soccer, and, and I just kept skiing for fun. And I competed in a few big mountain competitions. I was the only one in the whole lineup that wasn't on an actual team, um, but I would place pretty well. I'd place top ten. You know, I did like two of them. I, and this is for ski racing. This is for big mountain competitions. So that's where they give you an allotted, you know, section of the mountain, and you can choose any way that you want to get down. And you're judged on creativity, aggressiveness, um, smoothness, and and I did those a couple times, and I was like, okay, like I can actually hang with some of the top skiers in the country and then I just kind of kept it going and I, I, I would film with my friends sometimes but I always in high school like wanted to like take it somewhere um, but my dad always told me he's like son like we didn't raise you to be like a professional skier like we'll support you no matter what but like the most important thing you can do is like learn to be uh, a father and a good man and you can obviously do both at the same time, but skiing is so, like, seasonal that you have to give everything that you have during those winter months. So I was like, all right, I guess I'm going to stick with the cross. You know, I can do that, and I just, I'll just just keep skiing fun. And that was, like, my whole, like, kind of thing. I was like, I'm just going to keep skiing fun. I'm not going to get caught up in the sponsorships or this or that. As nice it would be to, like, have some gear, I just... I've I've, I've been super lucky to realize that it's not about the sponsorships. It's not about the videos. It's not about this or that. It's just about going out there with your friends. And I'm lucky to have such a great group of friends that we just mess around. We have a little Instagram account. And What's the Instagram? Whamis Media, baby. Oh, uh, does ZJ have a shirt? ZJ bought a sweatshirt. <laughs> we, we sell some swag. Like, we literally just have such a good time. And we just, we just kind of make a joke out of it all. And there's some amazing skiers in that group that are super underrated. But... You know, we all just kind of have a good time together. It's so fun. Oh, that is fun. I was thinking while, while you were talking, I was laughing because not to Bowen, if you're ever going to listen to this, no shade to you, but at one of those next family debates, you could, were you ever on a Rose Bowl University of Utah 
yeah. commercial. <laughs> I think that was the I think that was the pile driver for yeah. like the thing. But Bowen has had some videos that like blew up on Instagram. Yeah. Like went viral. Um but he yeah, so he's he's definitely had more viral clips uh-huh. than I have. Um but I I've I have been on the Rose Bowl big screen for sure <laughs> and, and on ESPN. So <laughs> shout out to you. I mean I wouldn't do it without my lacrosse career, so it's great. I I love those late nineties, early two thousand ski videos. Mm-hmm. I actually whenever I go to the DI or Goodwill, I always look at the DVD collection mm-hmm. and I uh I collect like the old ski videos, yeah. like the homemade ones. Yeah. Because they're funny. And you got music in the background. It's pretty cool. It's so fun. It's a great thing. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in the video sense, I feel like the ski community and the skateboarding community are kind of similar in that sense. Yeah, they are, for sure. Um, it's definitely kind of, like, especially, like, the ski, snowboard, and skateboard, it's just kind of viewed as, like, that just, like, ragtag group of, you know, individuals. And it's kind of... Just so, I think it's because people can't really relate to it, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like, someone that skis will be like, okay, dang, they're skiing, like, really fast and down something pretty steep. But, like, people don't really understand exactly how crazy the stuff these people are doing. And and they'll watch the videos, they'll do everything, but video can never really capture, like, what's going on. Yeah. And And I feel like that's the same thing with all those sports, skateboarding, snowboarding, skiing is that it's like, dang, it's really cool what these people are doing, and it's, it's, it's growing slowly in this extreme sport world. But I don't think it'll ever be the, the football, the baseball, or anything, because people just don't understand. And yeah. they, they never will be, because like, it's such a specific skill set that they have that anyone from high school that played on their high school football team are like, dang, like, Freaking Patrick Mahomes is a quarterback, and he can make amazing plays. Like they can relate to it, but they don't. They don't understand what's going on. Yeah, and the point you made too it will never be like a football or a baseball. The accessibility mm-hmm. as well, because I'm sorry, but no one awesome's coming out of Cleveland, Ohio. Yeah. Except, do you know who Red Gerard is? Of course, he grew Legend. up for like six years, maybe seven years. Like he was born in Cleveland, Ohio. <laughs> He lived there for six years. I don't know for sure, but then when his – he's snowboarding, correct? Yeah. When his snowboarding career started to take off, I think his family packed up and moved to Colorado. Yeah. But that was during that 2018 Olympics. Mm-hmm. Cleveland was gassing him up. Let's go. Yeah. Wait, shout out. Red Gerard, if you're listening and you ever want to come on. I'm sure Red Gerard is too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Are you kidding me? Have you ever gotten injured skiing? Um. Yeah. Uh, not, not badly, honestly. Um, That's I've been very fortunate. I've had, I've had friends that have broken their backs and, um, yeah, knees, legs, femurs, knocked many teeth out. Oh um, my gosh. Right. Some, some bad injuries, but I've, the worst thing I've ever had is a hyperextended knee my senior year of high school. Like. Knock on wood. Yeah. And, and people tell me that every time I've, I've broken my thumbs many times. Um, but like you can always just slap a cast on that and kind of keep playing lacrosse and skiing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've been very, very blessed and fortunate to not really have any. And I think that's because of my older brother. It's like every every skier kind of growing up, especially if they're like kind of the first in their family or whatever, they uh, they just don't know and they don't know how to do it safely. 
and my brother went through that stage, and he never really got horribly injured. Um, but I, uh, every time I wanted to do something stupid, my brother was like, he knew my capabilities, and he knew like how hard I could go and how hard I could push myself. And the difference between that, like, okay, you're pushing yourself and doing something sweet, or you're doing something unsafe. Yeah. And believe it or not, like as people people will say anything's unsafe, skiing or you know skateboarding, but there really is a safe way to do everything. Oh yeah. So as long as like, and I kind of had my brother to just like kind of guide me and teach me about those things. So I I'm I'm very fortunate to really not have any major injuries. Would you say that fear is a major element? You got to remove that fear because if you have hesitations and things can go wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. Fear is the number one injury causer of, I think, any extreme sport. If you have fear or any doubt in your mind, you the the chances of you getting hurt are they skyrocket. So we always just say commitment. Like you have to commit. If you have any inkling or, or doubt, and you can see it. Like you'll see like someone like trying a new trick off of like a cliff. And if you can see like if they're hesitating or if they don't, or if they're not fully committed, you can see it whether they land it or not, and it's scary. Um, but yeah. if you have that full commitment and you just remove fear for that, like those six seconds, right? Um, the feeling after is there's there's nothing like it. Now, are you a music listener while you ski or no? Um, if I'm if I'm solo skiing, I'll I'll pop in my earbud. But I don't. I like to just be up there with my friends. I mean, yeah. the banter and the communication is just it's. It's the banter. Too, it's the banter with bells. <laughs> right? The banter is just too important. It's the too big of a sport or too like big of a part of skiing for me to, you know, put in earbuds to like knock out what some of my friends are saying. So, and you gotta enjoy the silence sometimes. Yeah, there's a beauty in it, especially skiing where you could be on thirty miles an hour and you you won't hear a single word besides your coat rustling in the wind. And it's like it's like almost spiritual. Oh, yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like hippie stuff right there. It's interesting, too, how much snow snow acts as, I don't know the proper word, I want to say insulator, or mm -hmm. it absorbs noise, yeah. you know? So it really is yeah. silent. It's it's incredible. Mm -hmm. You'll be, you'll be like, first people off a of powder day, off the lift on a powder day. You'll be skiing, and all you'll hear from all around the mountain. I this is like... This is like existential. Like this, your like body comes out, or your spirit comes out of your body here. Yeah, you're like skiing down a run. No one's in sight. You can't hear anything except for a little like, whoop, yip, like little in the distance of like other people being like, you, yeah, like woo. When's the appropriate time to make those noises? Oh, uh, so a face shot is like appropriate. What's a face shot? It's when the snow comes up in your mouth or uh -huh. like your face. It's like so deep that you're just getting blown snow all over you that's like that's a that's a proper like you or a yippee you know something and, like that and you make that noise or someone witnessing makes that um noise? oh either or either, so okay mostly you um but you'll give a little like you know it's called hype you know you gotta you gotta be that energy provider for your friends when they're doing a, a crazy line or something you see your friends getting you know getting in the pit you got you gotta support them and give them a little shout out but it's mostly like tricks and stuff like it's the spectators. Like you gotta, you gotta hype them up. Okay. For you gotta give them some use and some some yippies. But uh, when you're when you're skiing down and you're solo and you're just in the powder and you can just hear the people in the trees around you and you don't see anything else, it's a, uh, it's completely up to you. 
Do you wear a helmet? I do. I I'm a I I don't think I'll ever ski a single day in my life without a helmet. Good. It's just like helmets are comfortable. So like I don't know why people don't wear helmets, and they're warmer than beanies. So yeah. Like I don't know, and people obviously have their own opinions, but no, you should be wearing a helmet. like if anyone's listening, not yeah, wearing a helmet, you should be wearing the a helmet. the definitely the payoff to like what could happen. It's just not worth it to me. Yeah. Anything can happen. Like, I don't go skiing much, but when I do and I catch speed, I think, my, like, if I hit a tree right now, I could die. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah. helmets are definitely necessary. Yeah. Could you see yourself committing more to your skiing career once college ends or no? Um, yeah, I could. Definitely still, like, going to keep what my dad said in the back of my mind. Just, like, I got to be, my next step is just, like, being a great father and a great man. Yeah. But um, I want, I definitely wouldn't be opposed to giving it a year or two of just, like, full effort, skiing as much as I can. And not just in the aspect to being, like, okay, maybe I can pick up a ski sponsorship here or there, a brand or a clothing apparel company. But um, it, it'll just kind of be, like, that next step to where, I'm leaving college across. I, I got to find other ways to push myself. Mm-hmm. And skiing could very well be that next step. I'm not going to put any, like, hardcore riding into that because I don't know what my future is going to hold. But whether that be skiing or another s- extreme sport, I, I definitely, I'm super into, uh, or I think I want to get into base jumping. So it's like hiking up mountains, jumping off cliffs and pulling a parachute. Um, oh my gosh, bro! Yeah, I have a I have a good friend who's really into it, and it just looks really fun. And obviously, it's like a lot more dangerous. But there's a thing called speed flying, and it's where you ski down the mountain, and you have your parachute out, and you can leave the ground whenever, and leave and jump off cliffs, and then go touch ground again and ski like a, very lightly, and then pull up back up, and and that's definitely kind of where I want to get to. <sighs> To where I'm speed flying down faces. Dude, 20 years from now, I better not be seeing a new movie like t- 127 hours about <laughs> you. You know, dude, I think life is just too darn short to live in fear of stuff. So, like, I don't know. I just, I want to give everything a shot. Yeah. You know, I've, I, these last four years, I've, I've really toned back on what I am pushing myself to do, mm-hmm. especially in the ski world. Um, and I kind of just want to, once, once lacrosse is over, I just want to find more ways to just feel like I'm pushing my limits. How does Abby, how does Abby feel about these extreme sports? Abby, bless her heart. <laughs> um, she, she doesn't, she supports me and she, she, luckily she's like part of it. She enjoys skiing and mountain biking and all these things as well and rock climbing. That's good. But she definitely, I don't. And not just her, but just most people, they they don't really understand, like, they can't relate to how I think about these things. Like, they go because it's, like, a good workout, and, like, it, it it's great to be outside and in nature, and, and it's, it's stress-free. But, like, I go because I just relate it back to sports and everything. It's, like, life's too short. I want to push myself. I want to see what my capabilities are, mm-hmm. and I want to just do whatever this life allows me to and and I'm not saying that as like a death wish and being like oh yeah, yeah I, I want to live a short like crazy life of course I want to live as long as I can but I think 
goes all back to my faith to where just we we ask ourselves as people like what is the purpose of life so much where did we come from where are we going and i know those first the first question and in the last question and i know that god sent us all here to just experience life and learn and become better people build relationships and build relationships yeah. and and struggle um, but I also think he that there will be things as, as happy as we may be in heaven or wherever we go. I think there are things that earthly, like we will never have emotions like this in our life, you know. So being able to choose from good and bad is the same as being able to choose from boring and exciting, in my opinion. Yeah. I just want to captivate every second that God has given me on this beautiful planet, you know. Yeah. One thing that upsets me is when... People, when they retire, they have a hard time picking up hobbies, Mm -hmm. you know? Like, you've worked your whole life. Mm -hmm. You've been looking forward to this point in your life. you got to find a hobby. Yeah. you got to find something that excites you. Yeah. Whether it be rock climbing, skiing, Uh or even little things like just riding your bike around the neighborhood. Or knitting. Knitting. Yeah. Yeah. Basket weaving. I, yeah. Do you know how to do that? No. Uh, Well, yeah. With, like, I can do plates and bowls, but. How'd you learn that? In In the Marshall Islands, yeah. Jeez, yeah, I gotta go to the Marshall Islands. Yeah, yeah. And do you enjoy climbing more than skiing, or no? No, I. Extreme sport like roster list, I'd probably skiing is at the top by far. Yeah. Um. Mountain biking, is probably second. There's a there's a hard tie between mountain biking and rock climbing. Rock climbing is so much more of like a mental feat because you're so, so scared, especially as you push yourself harder. Um, and you're doing things that like, you're like, dang, like I've been working on that one move for a week and a half. You know, this one little move of my arm to the next little chink in the rock. Like it's so satisfying, just the little victories in that. And then mountain biking's like skiing. It, where it's creative, it's fast paced, it's you can push yourself to be better. But um, I'm just not as good at mountain biking yet. Um, I had to sell my bike when I left on my mission. Haven't really had the money to get a new one since. So I'm just kind of like waiting until lacrosse is over. I can get a job and get back into mountain biking. But rock climbing and mountain biking, they're definitely just, they go hand in hand with great hobbies to get me outside and, and continue to push myself in little ways. Awesome. Well, Justice, we've been talking for an hour and 40 minutes. Thank you. Uh, this You officially hold the record for the longest podcast at episode three. Wow. So if you want to uh, sign the poster, yeah, carry on the tradition. Definitely. It's been an honor, Bells. Yeah, this has been fun. Tremendous. Wherever wherever you want. Oh, my gosh. Okay, I'm going right, right here. Perfect. Right under the W. It's a good signature. Appreciate it. I used to practice in in elementary school because I thought I was going to be a professional skier. You never know. So I was like, you know, I always had the rundown, the the whole notebook of just signature options to choose from. Many things in my arsenal, really, (laughs) just for signature-wise. Sadly, haven't been able to use it yet because... I'm a half-decent lacrosse player, but it's good. It's a fun time. Oh, no, the little kids love it. (laughs) All right, well, this has been Episode 3 of Banter with Bells. Thank you for listening.